0: Our guests today are Elizabeth DeFontenay, professor of law at Duke University, and Eric Talley, professor of law at Columbia University. We'll be discussing the Revlon Citibank wire transfer case, which was recently decided in the Southern District of New York and is pending appeal in the Second Circuit. Talley is the organizer of a Scholar's Amicus brief in the appeal, and DeFontenay is the author of The $900 Million Mistake, In Ray Citibank Wire Transfers, which is forthcoming in the Capital Markets Law Journal. I'll link to both items in the show notes for the episode. Elizabeth, Eric, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Andrew. I wondered if we could maybe set the stage a little bit. This case has certainly been in the news as a huge blunder, a $900 million wire transfer by Citibank to a number of creditors of Revlon, the maker of makeup and cosmetic products that it should not have made. Uh, So this case has gotten a lot of attention just because of that large dollar figure at the top of the headline. But I wondered if you could set the stage for us a little bit. What was the state of play between Revlon and its lenders? What did the administrative agent, in this case Citibank, do? What should it have done with regard to this payment? And what do the various actors do in the immediate aftermath of an erroneous $900 million payment?
1: Great. I'm going to step back pretty far, actually, to the late 1980s, because it turns out that Revlon is the gift that keeps on giving for people interested in transactional loss. The current controlling shareholder of Revlon is a gentleman named Ron Perlman, who holds it through his holding company, McAndrews and Forbes. He acquired the company back in the late 80s in a leveraged buyout transaction. And it was uh, not a friendly deal. So that takeover battle led to pretty clearly the most famous takeover case in all of Delaware history, the Revlon case. And we are still struggling through the Revlon doctrine today. But for our purposes, what happened here started in 2016. So in 2016, Revlon borrowed about $2 billion in loans in connection with its acquisition of Elizabeth Arden. And Citibank was the underwriter for that transaction. And then once the loan was issued, it was the administrative agent, which is the bank that really acts as uh, essentially just it's supposed to act as a neutral middleman between the borrower and the lenders. And so if the borrower needs to make a payment, it will go through Citibank out to the lenders. If the borrower issues a notice, it will go through Citibank. And if the lenders want to claim a default or something like that, it will again go through Citibank. Fast forward to spring of 2020 and Revlon is actually in pretty serious financial distress. So the cosmetics market has changed a lot. Apparently people you know prefer to buy from YouTube stars as opposed to the traditional way of buying cosmetics in department stores and so on. And the company's debt is trading at about 40 cents on the dollar. So Revlon tries to restructure its debt and borrow some new money. And it does it in a very aggressive way. So it, it uses an approach that was first adopted in connection with the loan restructuring of J. Crew, that was driven by its private equity owners, TPG and Leonard Green, back in 2017. And that approach is the company takes its most valuable intellectual property and this intellectual property is currently serving as collateral for your existing debt, you take that and you transfer it to new subsidiaries that are not bound by the covenants in your existing credit agreements, and then you lend against that collateral. That restructuring, in some sense, is absolutely devastating for the existing creditors. It's referred to as collateral stripping because you really are just taking a big chunk of collateral away from your existing lenders, and using it to secure new debt. But here, unlike in the J.Crew transaction, Revlon needed lender consent to do this. So J.Crew found a loophole in its credit agreement to do this, but here, very clearly, Revlon needed to get the consent of its existing lenders. Now, the usual way to do that, because you can't imagine why existing lenders would consent to something like that, is you do it by making a really coercive offer to your existing lenders. What you say is, for those who consent to the restructuring will put you either in a sort of slightly better position than you were in before, or maybe even slightly worse than you are currently. But for those who don't consent, they will be put in an absolutely terrible position relative to where they are now. And so that leads lots of lenders to consent, even though they don't like the transaction. But they couldn't actually get that done either this time because it turns out that this doesn't usually happen, but the lenders actually managed to coordinate with one another. They banded together and they signed an agreement saying that they wouldn't consent. So a slight majority of the lenders actually pre-agreed that they wouldn't consent to the restructuring. So it looked like it wasn't going to be able to happen. Revlon comes back and finds a way around that. It needs to increase the voting power in favor of the transaction. So what it does is, It purports to take out a new revolving loan with commitments from some of the lenders that were willing to consent to the transaction. And those revolving loans were never actually going to be funded. They weren't going to be used for any purpose. It was just to increase the voting threshold. And they just made it over the wire by counting those votes. Now, it's not clear that any of this was actually permitted by the credit agreement. In fact, it looks like the better argument is that it was not permitted by the credit agreement. Revlon went ahead anyway. So here we are in August 2020, and the lenders who are furious about this restructuring transaction are just getting ready to sue Revlon and Citibank. And this is where things get really interesting, and I will let Eric speak to that part of the events.
2: Thanks, Elizabeth. You've got this exactly right, that that the lenders are incredibly upset by having been kneecapped by this restructuring of Revlon's debt. This is an old story, by the way, because it's a form of tomfoolery that we see many times over, particularly when companies get into financial distress that doesn't you know, make the lenders any less upset. And they were ready to sue here. In fact, it seems like they were probably within a day of filing a lawsuit against Revlon. But what happened before that, that's where Citibank comes back into the picture as the administrative agent on those 2016 loans because some of these Revlon debt holders actually agreed to restructure their claims, and Citi had to work to treat them by you know, putting them into new classes of debt and effectively cashing them out of the old ones, but keeping the other ones around. And so this involved both releasing the total amount owed to the lenders who are rolling up their debt, who are restructuring it, and also to make sure that they got paid some partial interest that it accrued since the last payment of interest, but then also keeping all of the refuseniks behind and been the same place that they were. And These types of midstream changes to debt payments can be tedious, even more tedious when not all the lenders are being treated in the same way. And that's where the the problem happened. It was with the architecture of Citibank's software program, which kind of required all the lenders to be treated the same, notwithstanding the fact that only some of them were rolling up their debt claims and others were staying put. And the way that Citi basically got around this constraint in their software program was to set up what is effectively a dummy transaction to pretend that everyone was getting paid off. But for the folks that weren't actually getting paid off, just put that money in a different account. And so what they had intended to do and what everyone seemed to think was going to go on is they were just going to make this partial interest payment to everyone, but they were not going to release the principal that was owed to the lenders that didn't want to restructure. And this required a bunch of hand entry modifications to their system in order to set all of the parameters to make this happen. The manual entry protocols were not the most intuitive in the world, and the three different layers of city employees who were overseeing this process all unwittingly thought they had done it the right way, and they hadn't. And the end result was that nearly a billion dollars worth of principal payment was in fact released to all of the lenders, and the intent was only to release about $7.8 million in partial interest. Now, that mistake got made, I think it was the very end of the day on August 11th. By 9 a.m. the next day, Citi had figured out that they had screwed up and they contacted all the lenders trying to get the the, uh, mistaken payment back. Most of the lenders actually complied and said, "Okay, sure, here are the funds back. But some of the largest holders, about 10 hedge funds, basically said, hey, if you want your money back, you should sue us. We're keeping it. And that's exactly what Citi did at the end of 2020.
0: The city had several hundred million dollars out there that it believed belonged to it, and some hedge funds believed that the money belonged to them. And as you said, there was the unavoidable litigation that followed in the Southern District of New York. That case was recently decided by the Southern District. What happened in that case? What did the court decide? Was that a surprise decision to the parties or to market participants, or was it an expected decision?
2: Well, here, I'll start with that and Elizabeth might have a few other things to add. So city sued under a kind of a hidden corner of contract law that's not really even part of contract law called unjust enrichment or restitution. And this is an area of law that is notoriously opaque. It's been described as a thicket by people who comment on these areas of law, but it's essentially an area of private law that concerns being able to claw back mistaken benefits that were conferred on others. And it's even more general than that, but that's the use that city was putting it to. And I think that a lot of people, the general line on this that one tends to present to law students and practitioners and so forth is that bona fide mistaken payments usually get returned. That's the general expectation that they are going to be concerned. But there is a constellation of defenses out there, usually having to do with the bona fide recipient of a mistaken payment who doesn't have any clue that there was a mistake that was actuating the payment itself. And within the world or the universe of corporate debt, this is sometimes known as the discharge for value defense. There was significantly A case about 30 years ago in the federal court in New York, but there was also some consultation with the Court of Appeals, the High Court of New York, about whether this was a correct statement of New York law in which an administrative agent had mistakenly paid off a debt. In that case, it was the balance in a revolving line of credit, and the lenders were allowed to keep that mistaken payoff. And so when this case gets into Judge Jesse Furman's courtroom in the fall of 2020, The lenders cite this case, this bankworms case from 1991, and say, this is exactly what the situation that applies to us. Citibank vehemently protested that it was not a similar type of a situation. Nonetheless, at the end, a fairly compressed trial, Judge Furman issued a fairly long opinion that said that in his view, the precedent that was set in the bankworms case 30 years ago governed this case as well. And as a result, the lenders got to keep the mistaken $900 million payment. And if Citi wanted to revisit the issue, they had to appeal to the Second Circuit, which they've now done.
0: So they have now appealed to the Second Circuit. And Eric, you organized a scholar's amicus brief to the Second Circuit for this case, collecting support from a number of contracts and law and economic scholars. Let's maybe talk about that amicus brief and some of the arguments that you and your fellow amici put forward in it. What did the court get wrong in the Citibank case in terms of applying New York contract law?
2: Let me get at that by answering a portion of your prior question that I didn't really take on, it, which is how surprising was this outcome? I would say, and Elizabeth, you may have either similar or different views on this, that if you were betting on the outcome, you would have bet that the opposite opinion would have issued from Judge Furman.
1: I, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah
2: and, and listen, the, the only time something gets into litigation is that when you've got some at least decent arguments on both sides of the case. So I think it would be disingenuous to say, oh, this was a clear cut, open shut case from the very get-go. If that were the case, would have been dropped or settled long before it got into court. So there were some arguments that both sides had, but I do think that most people thought, yeah, this is, I guess the lenders should go for it. They got the money, they might as well give it a shot, but they're probably not gonna win. So I personally, and it sounds like Elizabeth, was surprised that they won. And part of the reason I think has to do with some of the curiosities that I had or I found in Judge Berman's opinion. And you were correct, Andrew, that I organized an amicus brief from about a dozen sort of law and economics oriented professors and, and essentially the argument that we make or that we present in the amicus brief was that there were both sort of some legal shortcomings in the opinion as as far as what we could tell and then some you know odd applications of the facts that are somewhat related. The legal deficiencies are the key ones that I think that we saw in this case. The first one is that this discharge for value defense, it really turns on the ability to be able to claim that, look, I was just a good faith recipient of money that I thought was coming to me and I had no notice that this was a mistake. It's not just that I... Decided to bury my head in the sand and pretend I didn't know there was a mistake. That even an objective person wouldn't be on constructive notice that there was something a little bit weird about this payment. And in, under New York law, that also tends to be highly related to something that's called inquiry notice. That this question pertains to whether the recipient of the mispaid funds had enough knowledge that would lead a reasonable person to make an inquiry to the relevant party. Well, here, that relevant party would be City to pick up the phone or send an email and say, look, we just got a $900 million payment for you. Did you really intend to send that? That never got made. And what's also odd about this situation, notwithstanding, or in addition to the pretty vehement disagreements that the parties were already having about this very matter is that there were protocols in place for when one of these early payoffs would occur and none of them were followed. So the constructive notice part seemed a little bit strange and it's related to the two other parts that from at least a legal perspective seem strange about the opinion. And the first, which is I think related to what a reasonable party have reason to believe there was a mistake has to do with whether the loan that's being paid off was actually due and payable when the mistaken payment was made. In this case, as Elizabeth explained, this was a loan that was taken out in 2016. It was not due to be paid off. It didn't mature until 2023. So there are still two years ticking on the clock, and suddenly you get an immediate payoff of an unannounced payoff of the principal. That 30-year-old case, that bankworm's case was a little bit different because that was a lender who had made essentially loans through a revolving line of credit that was pretty short term in nature. And every time the revolving line of credit expired, while it's often the case that the creditor will say, oh, I'm going to just roll it over into another one of these periods. That's why it's called a revolving line of credit in some ways. In this case, the lender thought, look, this borrower is in some financial distress. We just want our money back now. They had full rights to do that. And everyone agreed in that case that they had decided we didn't want to roll over the line of credit. Uh, They wanted their money now. It was due and payable. And so there was a sense when they got the mistaken payment there after having made a demand for something that they clearly were entitled to, They were in a better position than the lenders in this case to say, yeah, we had no notice that anything other than just an accession to our demands was being made. And then the third legal part of the case has to do with the allocation of the burden of proof. So as I said earlier, Citibank was the plaintiff in this case. They had brought the case forward alleging that they had an unjust enrichment claim. And the discharge for value defense is an affirmative defense, which basically means the burden of proof should be on the defendants, on the lenders in asserting that defense. And while the trial court opinion says that's the case, it also has a long and confusing footnote in which Judge Furman says he really thought that burden should go in the other way, avoid having to put the defendants in a position of proving a negative proposition. And in fact, in a bunch of the points of the opinion that we highlight in our amicus brief, it looks like he's discussing the proof that was offered at trial against the microscope of whether City had proved that there was constructive notice, when in fact, the burden is pretty clearly for this type of defense on the defendants. Proving that they didn't have any notice. That, those are, they're all interrelated, but I think those three are probably the biggest um, sources of questionable legal reasoning in the opinion. There was also just some facts that I think get laid on top. And, and this one's a bigger ask on appeal because factual findings are much harder to overturn on appeal. Now, some of which I already re- alluded to. If you think about the backstory in this case, this was debt that was trading at a very steep discount. The last thing Revlon would ever want to do is pay it off. And even if They were gonna do it, they would probably want to make it as part of a settlement offer to these litigious lenders. And instead, it was just paid at par in full with no advance warning, with no you know, settlement offer or or a draft standstill agreement or anything like that. There was discussion by many of the lenders wondering what's this all about. The lenders didn't react to the payment by crediting Revlon's account. They acted as though they weren't sure what this payment is for. And Revlon even recalled the payment or attempted to recall the payment for in many. Any of the lenders cases before they'd actually registered that the mistaken payment was read. In many ways, the facts, Judge Furman's interpretations of the facts didn't seem to strongly support at least the way that I understand and my fellow amiki understood the application of the legal principles in the case.
0: That's the doctrinal argument that you and your your fellow amici make to the Second Circuit on why it should take a different track from Judge Furman and reach a different conclusion as a matter of law. You also talk in the amicus brief about some of the economic implications of this case and some of the outcomes that could exist for those. You specifically talk about economic implications for collaborative contracting, for risk allocation, for transaction cost economics. Can you maybe run through those a little bit and what we might see as, as some implications there?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll do it quickly. And I suspect Elizabeth has some things to add here too, because they're also treated quite nicely in her article on this case as well. So I think it starts from what is contract law and what are contracts and what are courts supposed to be doing in administering contract law? I think a lot of my students and maybe lay people, maybe even some business people that haven't gone to law school, they subscribe to this almost mythology that contracts must be, it's a full menu specification of all the risks, duties and obligations that are being borne by all parties regardless of what happens in the future what an economist might sometimes refer to as a complete contract. And while that's really appealing, I think most people who think very much about this topic realize that, that beyond the most simple types of contracts, a complete contract probably doesn't exist or maybe an impossibility. It's really hard to envision all the different branches of the tree that we might go down in the future once we've contracted with one another to describe all the things we're supposed to do on every branch of that tree to harness all the information that's available. Even if we could try to address all of these different contingencies, it'd be so costly to do so, it probably wouldn't be worth getting into a contract. And that's what courts can, in, in my view, should be doing to try to fill those gaps when you hit something that just seems to have been a very unlikely contingency that now the parties need to deal with. When a court's trying to do that, I think most people think courts should try to fill it in a way that's consistent with the value proposition that the parties thought they were getting into when they formed the contract. And my sense is there's at least three parts of this. So one is, particularly for longer-term relationships, and this is one of them, where you're paying off a debt for multiple years, I think there's going to be a lot of situations where the parties themselves, if they're appropriately incentivized, can sit down at the table. They've hit some bump in the road. They didn't expect this bump. Let's figure out whether we can figure whether we can work out some uh, collaborative way to resolve it. And that happens a lot. And I think a lot of people in contract law say, yeah, that's actually a good thing. The legal rules that are available that are applicable should support that. And in this case here, the collaborators might be thought of the lenders who said, yeah, you're right. Here's the money back. They got treated like suckers in this case. And, And it was the litigious holdouts who ended up getting the worm or the bank worm in in this case and and being rewarded. So that's part of it. I think another part that we try to bring out in the amicus brief is a question of, on some level, this case revolves around who should be bearing the risk of a mistake. And I I think when I first heard about this case, I thought, oh, man, so this is like City's mistake. So they must have been in the best position to avoid the mistake. So of course, City should just bear the risk on this. But when you think more about it, this type of weird, kludgy manual entry and a bespoke situation, we're really talking about how you design an entire suite of software and back office protocols to deal with these sorts of situations. There are myriad, maybe trillions of ways where things can screw up. It's already hit the fan. I guess you could look backwards in time and say, oh, we could have avoided this particular screw up three years ago in the following way. But thinking prospectively ahead of time, ex ante, it's pretty complex to try to figure out all the different ways that things might go wrong. And then when you sit that side by side with the fact that, hey, there was also another way, another technology for figuring out how to detect and remediate these risks, which is if someone receives a mistaken payment, hasn't spent it yet, it hasn't relied on it in any way, they could pick up the phone or send an email and check to make sure that this wasn't a mistake. That's almost costless. You don't have to make considerable investments in upfront protections. And then the last one that I think we'll talk about a little bit more later on is that once we realize that complete contracts are a myth, then the default rule that sits back there matters. And I think one of the issues that this case brings up is that Judge Furman's opinion, if it ends up being affirmed, is likely and seems already to have at least induced several debt contracts to basically try to contract out of this opinion. And that comes at a cost not just of actually writing the provision, but then also spinning the roulette wheel on how that provision is going to be interpreted later on.
0: I'd like to turn to some of those market reactions in just a moment, but I'd like to turn right now to Elizabeth's paper that looks at this case, but also steps back a little bit and looks at the broader market for syndicated loans and some of the developments on that front. In the paper, you note that the bank firm's decision from the New York Court of Appeals, upon which Judge Furman based his decision in the Citibank case, uh, was decided in the early 1990s before the market for syndicated loans really emerged. To what extent is this dispute attributable to new market trends, or to perhaps even the rise of gamesmanship and debt financing.
1: I think a lot of it is attributable to that. But before we talk about that, I have to mention how great the bank firm's case name is. So obviously, it refers to a place in Belgium, but Matt Levine has a great article where he says, now every time a bank does a mistaken payment, they can just say, oh, we have the bank worms again. So that's my favorite part of this case. But yes, let's take a spin through the history of the loan market over the last 30 years. When bankworms was decided, so pre, you know, around 1990, uh, most corporate loans were bilateral contracts. You had one borrower and you had one bank, and these were often uh, very long-term relationships. So once the company paid off their loan, they would get another loan from the exact same bank, and this was their bank. And so you had a good working relationship between the parties and you had very close monitoring of the borrower by the bank. It was easy to amend the credit agreements because there was just one party on each side. But then with the 1990s, through a a series of factors, some involving bank regulation, some just market developments, We saw the rise of syndicated loans. So syndicated loans are essentially where one lead bank acts as the underwriter and negotiates the credit agreement with the borrower. But ultimately, the loan is funded by a very large group of lenders, many or most of which today are not even banks. So they could be loan mutual funds or securitization vehicles like CLOs. And so that's the first piece. You have a bunch of creditors now. The second piece is that these loans can be traded. There's now a secondary market for loans and someone can come in after the fact, including as in this case, where the borrower's already in big financial distress and buy up those loans. So the implications are that now today the loan market looks a little bit like the market for publicly traded stock, just less liquid. So in other words, The creditors now are largely passive. They don't have any relationship with the borrower, and this is crucial here, they don't have any relationship with each other. But unlike shareholders, creditors don't get the benefit of fiduciary duties from the company's management, so they have to rely mostly on contract to protect themselves. And there's two other big pieces of the puzzle here uh, that are relevant for this case. The first is the incredibly low interest rate environment that has persisted with a few blips for over two decades now, arguably more. And so as a result of that, lenders are really struggling to generate returns. And there's incredibly intense competition of lenders with one another. There's too much money chasing too few opportunities. The second piece is that we see increasingly aggressive behavior by distressed borrowers, primarily led by private equity sponsors. So you have this new crop of companies that are very highly leveraged by design. It's not as a result of misfortunes. They are ex-ante set up to be very highly leveraged. And these are really sophisticated parties, the private equity sponsors that own them, and they are well-versed in the most aggressive techniques for restructuring loans. So we put all of this together and what do we get? We essentially get that leveraged lending and distressed lending in particular has become this war of all against all. So somebody Uh, should do an episode of Survivor where we drop all the distressed borrowers and the distressed lenders together on an island. You give someone a conch shell and you get Lord of the Flies. In practical terms, what are we seeing? We're seeing an incredible devolution in relationships and really the almost total disappearance of norms in the loan market, which again is just wildly different from what we had in the pre-90s era. How does this relate to our case? It's There are two pieces of this. The first is Revlon's loan restructuring. So we saw extraordinarily aggressive behavior, most likely in breach of the credit agreement, and yet they decided to go ahead with it in any event, probably because they figured they had the bargaining power and then if they ended up in the bankruptcy judges tend to favor the borrowers and they could just get away with it by virtue of it, already being a fit on complete. The second part is that the lenders of Citibank is the lenders keeping the Citibank payment that was sent to them in error. So everybody I spoke to in the loan market said that payment errors happen actually not that infrequently. But up until now, lenders always return the money right away. And yet now these lenders, their immediate instinct was how can we figure out how to keep the money? That's going to give us some negotiating leverage uh, relative to Revlon.
0: New York law is arguably to contract and financing commercial law what Delaware is to corporate law, or at least it traditionally has been. Does this Citibank case, this Revlon case, highlight or suggest any pressures on that status? Are there things that New York should be worried about in terms of its dominance in this area? Were there signs that the common law of contract and restitution that New York offers is holding up pretty steadily? Or is the war of all against all, as you say, putting pressure on that doctrine?
1: I think it is. So you can make excellent arguments, as Eric did, that the case was wrongly decided even on its own terms. So even applying the precedents that the the court looked at, and also that it doesn't reflect good policy for the loan market, all of which I agree with. But for me, this also raises the larger question of whether this dispute really should have been resolved in a New York courtroom by a generalist judge in the first place. Just stepping back, the case was decided under New York law and federal court, and it's standard for credit agreements to pick New York law as their governing law. And that has been true for a very long time. So why New York law? Many reasons. The main one being that sort of especially post-World War II, New York was a world center of finance. The the second is that the banks themselves, the biggest banks of the U.S., are mostly headquartered in New York. And so arguably, they, up until the private equity sponsors came around, uh, they were always the drafters of credit agreements, and they would put in New York law, maybe on the assumption that this gave them a home court advantage. But mainly people think, or at least have argued, that they continue to pick New York law because since it has been around for so long, it creates a lot of predictability for the parties, and that it is probably optimal substantively, that the sort of long experience of dealing with lending transactions mean that it has come up with good law. These kinds of cases make me question whether either of those is true, the predictability and the sort of substantively optimal part of the arguments for New York law. So we have now a series of decisions that have really shocked the markets. And Jesse Furman is is the author of several of them. So there was also the big Argentina restructuring dispute with respect to Argentina's sovereign debt. A decision was rendered where Jesse Furman was interpreting the Perry passu clause in the bond indenture in a way that completely took market participants by surprise. And you have the, the notion that you have these incredibly sophisticated parties on both sides of a transaction. And their dispute is being decided by a generalist judge who does not have direct experience with the market and coming up with these decisions that really surprise everyone. That doesn't seem like an optimal outcome. And so I would say that today there's actually a big contrast between New York commercial law and New York lending law and New York law of common law of contracts relative to what we see with Delaware corporate law, where really, I think it's a lot easier to make the case that you do have predictability and you do have substantively optimal decision-making or close to optimal, or at least good decisions. And so people will say, look, the parties can opt out of most of these rules, that most of these rules are default rules. And so the parties can contract around them. There's really two responses to that. One is the one that Eric made, which is, you really can't provide for everything in a contract. And the second is, we want the default rules to be good rules. And I really question whether these default rules are good rules. I was laughing reading the opinion, realizing that you're citing case law from the 19th century. Does it make sense at all for that to be the source of authority for these particular disputes among really sophisticated parties?
2: Yeah, I've got a couple of things that uh, would complement what Elizabeth's talking about, too. I, I, I guess one thing that's probably at least worth giving a little bit of consideration to is how well, how functional or dysfunctional the common law process is these days in New York for highly specialized debt contracts. Uh, it's absolutely the case that New York remains a very popular, the dominant venue for lending agreements. One of the things that it seems is that we are increasingly on a collision course with is the increasing complexity and difficulty of predicting what's going to happen in the future and the role that a court's going to have to take in interpreting provisions that may not have been perfectly tailored to what Has actually occurred. And I think that's in in many ways, this kind of strange glitch in Citibank's software is one of these examples, but it's only one. One of the things that I'm optimistic overall, maybe a little bit more optimistic than Elizabeth is that this process may be kind of a watershed process so as to redirect trajectories of lending agreements as it evolves. That having been said, one of the attributes that she pointed out with respect to the syndicated loan market actually had a precursor in in the publicly traded corporate debt markets back in the 1980s and some of the most famous corporate debt cases our contract interpretation cases way back from Sharon Steele versus Chase Manhattan in 1982, and Katz versus Oak Industries in 86, and MetLife versus RJR Nabisco in 89. These were all cases involving the same or, or similar types of jiggery-pokery by debt holders to try to squeeze some of their creditors and to issue new debt.
1: And Yes, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and one of the things that's interesting, Elizabeth, is you remember, like the key thing I teach my students that comes out of those cases is because there are so many debt holders, courts get super freaked out about saying, okay, we can't have what's the meeting of the minds of these parties? What's right. their common intent? So we need to have a uniform interpretation of these boilerplate provisions. And that gave rise to an evolution of interpretation in debt contracts that basically says, you know what, we're just going to really try to stick to the four corners of the agreement and almost have a rigid application of them. And I think maybe what we're starting to see here is when you approach contract interpretation with that in mind, that's going to give rise to an awful lot of strategic incentives that people might have to say, okay, we're going to hold you to that. And now, you know, we're going to argue that something that maybe is literally complying with the terms of this agreement, but clearly isn't what we had envisioned we should be able to get away with. And maybe that's what Revlon was doing, is they were trying to take this inheritance from the corporate debt cases and try to amp it up as you would guess that they would be expected to do.
0: Eric anticipates, it sounds like, that this could be a watershed moment in terms of the development of law. Elizabeth, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Is this a temporary blip based on just rare facts? Or as you suggest, there have been a number of cases that have shocked the market. So could this be part of a pattern that has longer term consequences? Thoughts there?
1: I think it depends on whether somebody takes the lead in in trying for a different regime. So it could be someone like the Loan Syndications and Trading Association, which is really the trade association for the lending market. But it would take some organizing force to solve the collective action problems here and move to something different. So in terms of immediate market reactions, we've seen new credit agreements coming out with language explicitly overriding the Citibank decision, basically saying, hey, we accidentally wire you money. Guess what, guys, you have to give it back. And that, I would say, is just a natural reaction. It doesn't really that's what you would expect. But what I'm interested in is, will people realize that they want something different in terms of how their disputes are resolved? So you could imagine a range of things. You could imagine something like, arbitration before a panel of true lending market experts, where they're really not going to stick to the 19th century interpretation of some boilerplate provision, they're really going to go with what does the market expect is the right outcome here? Or I would argue, maybe it's time to create sort of the equivalent of Delaware corporate law, but for the lending market, you pick some really small jurisdiction that will be very focused on this Cayman Islands part two, or Delaware part two, where they they focus on getting judges who were all former practitioners who are really experienced with this and develop a common law that is really a living and very up to date common law as opposed to the New York common law of contracts with that has some pretty big holes in it.
2: I agree with most of that. I think that we probably are going to be seeing a bit of a showdown between what we've inherited in an ever thinning margin for what is the you know, duty of good faith, for example, in a loan agreement and the realization that uh, these things have gotten very complex and you can't write a loan agreement that's going to you know, tell you what to do in every possible contingency. On arbitration, I, I probably you know, my guess is we'll probably see a, a few folks flock to arbitration, but I don't think it's much of a panacea for a couple of reasons. First of all, the the arbiters are usually retired judges themselves. They're going to be looking at the bankworm's opinion and trying to figure out what to do. It's usually going to be under a a veil of increased secrecy, so we won't have the public amicus briefs or or other uh, mechanisms trying to true up what are people's expectations about the complexity of this environment. There's going to be less visibility from the outside, and therefore you won't even have precedents that are necessarily going to be a public good for others to take advantage of, unless it were a special type of arbitration on the specialized court issue, I, I think there definitely could be some room for that. Whether Delaware moves into that, New York decides that it's going to develop its own specialized courts, or, or whether it really is like a South Dakota or a Kansas that then becomes the arbiter of debt opinions. At the end of the day, to the extent that these opinions continue to come out, I would expect to see more Revlon blocker type provisions that are taken up. And, the, and these loan agreements, which are already super, super long, are yeah. probably going to get even longer.
0: Are there any closing thoughts or key takeaways you'd like listeners to have or thoughts for each other or closing thoughts on that front?
1: I'm not sure that I have a very cheerful, optimistic story here. I I don't think that uh, I'd be surprised if there were a big push anytime soon to change the way these disputes are resolved. I think what we're going to see is just more of the same. That is to say, more court decisions that kind of shock the market because they're decided by generalist judges under the sort of common law. I think we're going to continue to see incredibly opportunistic behavior by both borrowers and lenders warring with one another unless we see some big increase in interest rates or a major recession. I think we're going to see more of that. And I think we're going to continue to see the current reaction, which is the parties just keep adding on and writing longer and longer contracts. They spend more and more money on lawyers, both in the drafting and in disputes and enforcement without actually getting better outcomes. I think we're still going to see outcomes that surprise the markets, but also surprise the lenders themselves, the parties to these transactions.
2: I'll try to be a little bit more positive, but ultimately I'm in the doldrums with Elizabeth on this. I will be interested to see how the Second Circuit takes this on. My sense is that this has been newsworthy enough that people understand it to be a policy-relevant moment. My guess is there's going to be, once again, just like in bankworms, there may be a back and forth between the federal court and the High Court of New York trying to figure out what's the best way to structure this. In the bankworms' opinion, it in fact, it got offloaded to the New York Court of Appeals. They wrote it what it was basically an advisory opinion, and then sent it to the Second Circuit, that probably is going to happen again. And so this is a moment where I think we can have at least a discussion about the trajectory of this area of law. On the other hand, these markets, these practices, and it's not just legal practices, but commercial practices are slow to change. And so there's another little silver lining I have, Elizabeth, which is way more mercenary. So as a law professor, I'm super happy this opinion exists. The facts are new. They're noteworthy. I plan to teach it in my contracts class in the fall, as well as my corporate law class in the spring. It's going to, everyone's going to know about it because they will have read about it and that's fantastic. But the old aphorism that good cases can make bad law, I do have some concerns about the logic of this opinion. And if it's upheld, will it essentially encourage folks to lawyer up, to bloat their contracts, to bloat their compliance offices, which, by the way, Elizabeth, will increase the employment rates for our law student graduates. But true enough. yeah, but I I just don't know that it bodes all that well for the development of contracts.
0: Well, on that note, our guests today have been Elizabeth Devontane, Professor of Law at Duke University, and Eric Talley, Professor of Law at Columbia University. We've discussed the Revlon Citibank wire transfer case, which was recently decided in the Southern District of New York, and stay tuned because it is currently pending appeal in the Second Circuit. Our guest Eric is the organizer of a scholar's amicus brief in that appeal, and Elizabeth is the author of the $900 million mistake in Ray Citibank Wire Transfers, which is forthcoming in the Capital Markets Law Journal. I'll include a link to both items in the show notes for the episode. Elizabeth, Eric, Thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Had a blast.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.